today's episode of the ESG Beat, we will speak with Keir Gums, Associate General Counsel and Deputy Corporate Secretary of Uber Technologies. Prior to his current role at Uber, Keir was a partner at Covington and Burling and spent six years before that at the SEC. Keir is recognized as an authority on securities regulation and corporate governance. In today's episode, Keir will discuss how Uber is continuing to transform its corporate culture through corporate governance, from being transparent in its disclosures to increasing diversity throughout Uber. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Keir. Thank you. Very glad to be here. So today on the ESG Beat, I'd like to focus on your work at Uber, of course. But before I do that, can you tell us a little bit about your career before that? Sure. And, and again, really glad to be here. So um, I've been at Uber now for just short of two years. And uh, before I came to Uber, I was uh, a partner at Covington and Burling. Uh, and my practice there was mostly focused on uh, corporate governance, uh, securities disclosure, um, capital markets, and m and uh, And my, my past, and actually before I was there, I was at the SEC for about six years uh, in the Division of Corporation Finance. And then in my last year there, I was a counsel to one of the SEC commissioners. And, and my path to Uber was a little bit circuitous and, and unintended uh, in that um, Uber was one of my clients when I was at Covington. And uh, in 2017, when I was a very avid Uber user, uh, one of my colleagues uh, asked if I would be interested in helping on a very challenging and interesting governance project uh, relating to an investigation that was being done uh, at Uber at the time. and. Um, Basically, I, I worked on it. It was the holder. It, it was the end result was the was a report published by former U.S. Attorney uh, Attorney General Eric Holder, and uh, the report was called the Holder Report. And I was basically responsible for going through the investigative results uh, and analysis that was done by my colleagues, and then helping them come up with recommendations for Uber with respect to governance. Uh, related issues because uh, the report was ostensibly focused on culture, but there were tons of governance issues and they wanted to make sure that they had expert advice as they were putting together the recommendations about those issues. Uh, and so I did that and I will say for the record, we published the report and held our breath because we thought we'd be fired immediately <laughs> because we basically um, did not hold our punches and coming up with the recommendations, which were very tough uh, at the time. and. Um, you know, Uber took them and moved on with them and implemented them. And uh, somehow we, we, we stayed on, although not doing very much from a legal perspective, but we were one of their outside firms. And about a year and a half later, uh, one of my, my, the person who led that uh, project, Tammy, uh, Tammy Alboran, was called by then brand new general counsel, chief legal officer, Tony West, to come in and be his deputy. And, and uh, I don't think Tammy was looking for that job at the time, but, but it was, I think, intriguing to her. About three months later, Tammy calls me up and says, well, look, you know, I know you love Covington. I know you don't want to do anything else. Would you mind being seconded here? We need some help with some of the governance uh, recommendations coming out of the Holder Report, and we're thinking about an IPO. We need help with that. Would you mind coming, just becoming a secundee? you work for a few months, then you can go back to your regular at Covington. And... The rest is history, I'll just say. Uh, and, and now I'm the Deputy Corporate Secretary uh, at Uber and Associate General Counsel for Corporate. So that's a, a extraordinary story that I'd like to delve uh, into a little bit. And I've discussed this in the past with both you and Tammy. Now, 
for those who have uh, read what's publicly available about the Holder Report, um, we know that it was very extensive. You had many interviews. You uh, reviewed how many documents? Hundreds and hundreds of thousands. We did, I would guess, 6,000 surveys and interviews in person and online. It was an incredibly big team effort. And, you know, look, I, I, let me just say this, maybe previewing a little bit. I, it was Some of it was ugly. I mean, and none of this is going to be a surprise. There's some really challenging things in there. But the volume was, to your question, Amelia, like, it was incredible. And so you saw that underbelly, let's say, and you knew about the cultural challenges that Uber had. So why did you take the role? Why Uber in general? So, because um, I feel like this is just a story that we just don't do a good enough job telling. So for the, this is being audio recorded so people can look at my bio. I'm, I'm Black, African-American. And um, I've always had a very strong personal affinity from Uber from the very beginning because the stories that people hear about inability to get a cab is real. It is a real thing. It sucks. It's happened to me countless times. You're leaving school. You're leaving the office. You're leaving home. You're waiting on a corner, you're hailing a taxi. They literally will look at you and pick up the next person if they don't look like, if they don't look like you. Um, and I've had that happen so many times. I mean, so many, I, I, I honestly, in, like, I, and, and it's funny because I've had instances where I'll be in cities like New York or even San Francisco and I'll stand on the corner with a colleague who's not black and I'll say, watch this and I'll go and I'll try. And, you know, sometimes I do get tapped. I'm not going to say it's like every single time, but Frequently, not infrequently, they would pass you by. And I say, okay, I'll try. I'll try for five minutes, cabs, empty cabs, pass me by, turn the lights off. I take a step back, say, your turn. And it's like 30 seconds later, they have a taxi. And like from the very outset for me, what I loved about Uber was it took all of that out of the process. It took all of that out of the process. And it meant that I no longer had to have that extremely, extremely embarrassing humiliating feeling of not being good enough for a taxi to pick you up. And that's, I mean, it sucks. It sucks. And, and I thought, and I love the fact that Uber, and I don't even think this was something they were thinking about when they created it. It wasn't like an objective, but it was an unintended consequence that to me was very, very powerful. Um, and so I've always been attracted to Uber as a brand for that one purpose. And I wish we talked about that more because it's really incredible. But setting that aside, at the time that, um, that Tammy asked me to do this assignment and then convert from, you know, on loan to full time, you know, I'd seen the worst of it. To your point, I'd seen the worst of it. I knew, knew how bad Uber's culture had been. And at the same time, I also had this internal, very strong affinity for the brain and the idea that it could really be a powerful tool for fighting inequality and creating empowerment and creating opportunity for people. One. Two, I also felt very strongly that it was a, the people at Uber, notwithstanding the most senior folks who were most times the worst actors in the context of things like the older report, but the line, you know, engineers, lawyers, business people were good people who actually came there for a mission. Like most people at Uber then and now are very mission-oriented, and you'll see a lot more of this in weeks and months to come, by the way, very mission-oriented organization. And it was very clear to me in my engagement with people who were, they felt strongly that they were doing things to make 
the world better to, to create more transportation options, to create more mobility, to create more work opportunities. And I love that. And I felt like the misbehavior and, and lack of a moral compass by some former members of management had really besmudged a really strong group of people who cared. And I wanted to be part of helping them restore what Uber could have been or could be from a reputational perspective and cultural perspective. And of course, like any person, it's a challenge, right? Like as I say to my team, we're all firefighters. We're all the people that run into the fire to help. That is what we're doing. And that's what this role was. And the prospect in my mind of creating real value for shareholders, for communities, for drivers, for consumers, through what I can do through governance and helping them build out a governance program and an ESG program and all of those things, in my mind, was an opportunity I wasn't going to get again. And so even though I didn't really want to leave the firm, even though I loved what I was doing, and even though I knew all of the bad stuff that had happened at this company, to me, the opportunity to do good, to make improvements, vastly, vastly outweigh everything else. And that's why I took the job. And uh, Uber is very lucky that you did take the job and that you took it at such a crucial juncture in the transition between what uh, you know I've talked about as Uber 1.0 uh, to Uber 2.0. Um, so we've talked about the Covington Report and how that was challenging uh, to, uh, to prepare, but implementing the recommendations is, of course, where the real challenge lies and also that challenge is ongoing. Can you tell us about where you are on that journey and can you focus on corporate culture and also on the relationship between corporate culture and corporate governance? So it's a good question. So for, let's start with the report and the recommendations um, and then we can talk about culture and challenge. You know, um, there are some really hard stuff that was that were in the in the report and in the recommendations and so um as a in response to the things that came out from the from the report um there were basically 47 recommendations that we made and they, and they range from things like um how their compliance program worked their employment related policies and program work their culture and leadership corporate governance and and and, and all, all the things in between and, uh, and to be candid, by the time I got there, so I started effectively May 2018, uh, that's when I was a full-time secundee, and by the time I got there, they'd implemented substantially all of those recommendations. And so it's not, I, I, I can't take credit for it. And now, big, big point here. So when I say substantially all, it's one thing to have a policy it's a whole other thing to have a mindset change as a result of the policy and implementation. And so like, we've done all of the, or substantially all of the basic policy groundwork. You know, we've overall the cultural values, which is really a kind of a cool process way that Dara did it. We created a, a new whistleblower hotline that was still being tinkered with when I got there. We were working on uh, enhancing our corporate governance. Uh, Travis had finally left. Like when you look, with, if you went through kind of item by item, most of those changes had been either made or were substantially in progress by the time that I got there. So I literally can take zero credit for it. I think the thing that I hope to be able to take credit for, you know, years from now, is taking that baton of the very hard, and, and by the way, the thing about, just coming back to recommend, the thing that, that people should know is that the changes that were made to Uber's 
um, culture and management. They, yes, there were recommendations that came from us as an outside law firm, but inside Uber, people recognized that there needed to be change from the top to the bottom, from the directors, members of the board, and investors. I mean, and there's a sordid history of our investors looking to change the management. Go read uh, Super Pumped, you know, by Mike Isaac. I never want to give an endorsement for a book, but it is a somewhat close to reality accounting of what happened. And what you'll see is it wasn't just this law firm made a recommendation. It was a collective law firms, employees, senior management, investors, board members, all coming together and saying, we need to change. We need to change or this company is not going to survive. Um, but anyway, all that said, there are all these recommendations. Most of them have come down. The thing I hope to receive some credit for at some point is taking the baton and with respect to particularly um, governance, kind of leading corporate governance for public companies um, and, and culture, where culture and governance over, in, intersect, and I'll come back to that, that I took it and put us in the right direction. Hopefully, we will have built out a leading, a truly leading, not just leading for tech, which is right now we're leading for tech. That's faint phrase, honestly. The tech industry, in my very humble opinion, when you look at it from a governance perspective, it's not a leader in most things whether it be on corporate governance, on culture, by the way, on diversity, we have a lot of room to grow as an industry. Within that industry, I think we have like better than average, like very, very good governance, leading, in fact, I would say governance. But that's not where I want to end. I think the company deserves to have its governance program thought about the same way as technology is in terms of changing the dynamic, changing the way people think about it, advancing the ball. And that, that is what my team is collectively working for, and that's what I hope we can do. To your question around governance and culture, where do those meet? There was unequivocally a culture problem at Uber um, before we got there. And, and we talked about this in the next one, and I know we're going to talk about the disclosures. The truth is, some of that culture was good. Some of that culture was good. What were the good things? We innovated. We really believed in building things from the ground up. It was a, a flawed, but it was a, a meritocracy-oriented organization. The goal, whether executed well or not, was to identify talent wherever it was. You know, and some of the cultural norms talked about this concept of it doesn't matter if you're a senior person or a junior person. If your idea is best, let the best idea win. That's actually a good cultural value. How you deliver it, separate question. Good cultural value. And so um, those cultural things were there, but they become perverted over time. They were weaponized. They were used in a negative way, partially because there was a vacuum. You'd have these words on a piece of paper that said, always be hustling, but what does that mean? Always toe-stepping. What does that mean in practice? And they were executed in a way that was very negative, created more toxicity within the workforce, and was overall, frankly, led to tremendous degradation in value for everyone involved, for consumers, for investors, for the public at large. And, like, and so a lot of what Dara did in coming in and trying to change those values is really thinking about what are the good things from the old values and how can they be redirected in a more positive, clear, and constructive manner. And the way that governance comes into play with that, well, governance is about the system, the processes, controls, and the, the environment. And does that environment, is it conducive? creating and the, the values you want or does it interfere with it? Is it, it does it have no impact? And 
what Dara and Tony and the board and I, what we've collectively been trying to do is implement a set of corporate governance practices that make sure that these really good values that have been redeveloped over time are in an environment where they can be successful and flourish and result in the right kinds of activities and conduct that we want as an organization. So let's look at some of those concrete governance reforms that you made. Let's start just because of your background at the SEC. Let's start with disclosure. What did you do uh, right off the bat? What are you working on now? Yeah, we have a um, culturally a, I think I've said this to you before, Amelia, a radically transparent culture, an uncomfortably transparent culture, I would actually say from as a disclosure lawyer. Um, what do I mean by that? So like a lot of tech companies, we have these all hands. And um, they're usually either, either, either weekly or biweekly. And basically what happens is someone at management comes up, they're an hour long, every employee is invited to dial in. It's over Zoom, 27,000 people at the time, now it's 21,000. Everybody dials in and they give a presentation for 30 minutes and then could be on any topic by the way, the next one's on d and you know. Um, but it's on a topic, they give the presentation and then they do what we call Slido. And I love Slido although it's very uncomfortable because it's basically real time, people post a question and then it shows up on a screen and then people can vote it up or down. And basically what our management team is committed to is basically answering the, as many questions as they can within the 30 minutes that have been allotted, starting with the ones that have been upvoted the highest. And then they just work their way down and it is extremely transparent, yeah. How often do you do this? Well, now it's bi-weekly. Post-COVID, it's bi-weekly. Before COVID, it was weekly. Wow. That's a lot of engagement with the entire company. And when I say it's transparent, I mean, it's a no-holds-barred set of questions. You know the most powerful thing, just as an aside, I think I've seen in one of these? After the George Floyd death, management wanted to express its solidarity with the Black community. And so what they did at the All Hands is, in the beginning of the All Hands, they basically had eight minutes of eight minutes and 47 seconds, I believe, of silence, where, where they basically showed this picture and said, we're taking this time, the moment of silence, to remind people about the tragedy and horrible death and killing of George Floyd. We want to take it while everyone's attention is on this to highlight this very important issue. Not by, so that's what we do. We, we, we do these All Hands. What, what we've been doing on my team we have a ton of transparency initiatives. So I'll just highlight some of which, some of the ones that we've been doing, some of the ones that others, number one probably on the list is the transparency report, that safety transparency report that we published last fall. We're, we are still the only company. Amelia, the last time you and I spoke, I mentioned there was another ride sharing company who shall go name with us, who we were hoping would also come out with their report. That was eight months ago, almost nine months ago, still hasn't happened. But we did this report because we thought it was important to be transparent to the people who use our service, both drivers and, and riders, and also the communities that we serve, focused on incidents on our platforms. That's one. And the IPO, which I, which I think you were driving at, we took a very transparent approach to talking about admitting our failures with respect to culture, talked about that very openly in the IPO, as well as our goal of having and building a leading uh, corporate governance program, starting with our board, including senior management policies, all the way down to the person picking up the phone for uh, to answer customer complaints. And so we've been working on that. Um, we have uh, we did a diversity report starting two years ago um, that published every uh, it's annually. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment. We are what what's coming? You asked what, what we're working on. 
uh, I'd say as relevant for this, the most relevant thing is we have an ESG report, our first ESG report, which um, we have someone working on. We're, we're all working on it. We have a lead. Hopefully, it'll be published uh, in September of this year. We're, we're trying to figure out when it'll come out because we're also coming out with a number of climate and environmental related reports that are coming out this fall, including uh, un, um, a, a, our first report about uh, climate, our impact on climate, our impact on carbon, and the, car the carbon intensity of our platform. And no one's requiring that we do it. We will probably be the only ride sharing company that does that too, by the way. And it also includes some commitments to, our, to, to reducing the carbon intensity of our platform over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. So those are the big things I would say that we're working on right now. One thing that we didn't get into uh, that I wanted to ask you is the governance of ESG at Uber and how that overlaps with the legal function. So, you know, to be honest, there is overlap with legal, and I'll talk about that. But it's actually, for us, it's not just legal. It, it really is integrated into really every facet of Uber and the way that Uber operates. Our business teams, the policy teams, the engineering and tech organizations, compliance and legal. So just to be clear, I mean, it really is all of us are working on this together, um, but it is very deeply inter, interwoven with legal. And I, I'll give you two obvious examples. The first one, the biggest one, the existential issue for not just us, but for this entire industry relates to this question of driver classification. But really, honestly, at its core, people actually don't care about driver classification. What people care about is, are people able to earn a living wage? Do people have access to health care? Do people have access to financial security, such as retirement benefits? Like, that's really what people care about. You ask the person on the street, they don't care about employee versus a contractor. They do care whether people can survive doing this, right? And so, um, and that is something that, again, we own a portion of it on the legal side, as do our colleagues in policy. On the legal side, it, it informs a lot of how we operate. You know, we are... We obviously believe that our model is one that is legally correct, uh, but we recognize that there is this issue associated with it. And so part of what we do on, on an ongoing basis is every product decision that's made, literally every one, there's always this question about what does this do to the overall structure that we have in place where drivers are independent contractors as opposed to employees and making sure that it's all consistent, that we're never crossing the line and that we're reinforcing this model that is we work very closely with the policy team to make sure that we are representing and advocating for a regime that respects the model that we've created, but also make sure that the underlying concerns that people have around drivers, particularly in driver welfare, are being addressed. And there are things like you know, is there minimum earnings for drivers? Are there, are there programs that we can put in place working with other ride-sharing companies or other companies that use independent work to make sure that drivers have access to healthcare and insurance? And, and, it, and it's interesting because I think people think that Uber created the model. We did not. The model existed. This is basically the model, very similar to the model that taxis had before we got there. And it goes back hundreds of years. But the fact is, that because it's grown so much, people are concerned about it. And legal is one of the stewards of that concern and making sure that those things are, are addressed. I'll tell you, I don't know if I've told you this before, before I came to Uber, I spent almost four, or four years trying to figure out is there a way while Uber was still private that we can get equity in the hands of drivers. And that's because 
there were all these people at the company that were getting paid in stock and hopefully earning appreciation from that stock as that company grew and as the company grew in value. But because of the rules around independent contractors and the inability to give independent contractors stock, they were unable to participate in that appreciation and growth and, 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 and savings. You know, and so that's something that I worked on. Unfortunately, we weren't able to do it because of the rules are there's this very fine, very clear line between independent contractors and employees that meant you can give those things to employees and not to independent contractors. And so we, legal has been very involved in it. On environmental, same thing. On governance, as you might imagine, we own governance more than almost anybody else in the organization, intimately woven in. And so my team, you know, as the, um, as the responsible organization for governance and making sure that our governance addresses these very critical organizational needs, industry needs, independent work is where things may be going, uh, realistically, right? And can we create independent work in an environment that makes sure that the people who choose independent work have the same kinds of access to healthcare and all those other things that other people have? Our team and others are working on that on a daily basis. And so it's and making sure that those issues from a governance perspective are being considered by our board, by senior management, and, and, and so forth. So that's, I mean, those are some, that's one really big example, but that's largely representative of how those issues are interwoven with legal. So let's talk about another related issue, which is income inequality broadly, but how that relates to executive compensation. You're one of the few companies that have tied executive compensation to ESG targets. Can you tell us about that journey and where you are on it now? So journey is the right way to describe it. You know, the best part about that is that I wasn't even in the meeting. I wasn't even, I had nothing to do with it. Independent, our chief uh, people officer um, and our chief diversity officer, along with our CEO, thought that that was the right thing to do, which is to tie the um, compensation of key senior executives to progress against diversity goals. And I was, I was very proud of that. I remain very proud of that. I think it's great. Very few companies have done that so far. Last, and that was in 2018. Um, and then in 2000, no, that was in 2019 and in, in the beginning of, uh, uh, at the end of 2019, uh, beginning of 2020, we, we actually expanded it. So we have very specific metrics for the key employees, uh, key senior executives. We expanded it to basically everybody in executive leadership, um, uh, kind of a generalized expectation or an evaluation based on diversity and a few other metrics, by the way. Um, and what the journey was like, it was a recognition that compensation People behave the way that you incent them to behave. And if you're, if you're compensated for a certain behavior, you're going to engage in that behavior more, full stop. And I think in light of that recognition, the comp committee with our senior leadership wanted to make more progress on diversity than we were making. And so they decided to include that as, a, as part of the diversity metric. And so I think it's great. I think when you, when you look, and there's still very few companies that have done that, when you look towards the future, I think for all of the things that we think are important as an organization, they make their way into the compensation decisions. It's incremental. You can't you know, do it all at one time, but it is something that our comp committee and our board is, is constantly looking at and evaluating. So that brings me to racial injustice, and we've touched upon it a, a few times in the interview already. And thank you for sharing your story about how challenging it was for you to hail a cab. Um, 
your chief legal officer, Tony West, has uh, you know, told a similar story. It's uh, sadly and tragically not a surprising story. I want to talk about Uber's response to racial injustice today. How are you approaching it? What are you doing? What are the discussions like around governance in particular? So it's a really good time. Um, I don't know when this is going to be published, but we should stay in touch over the next few days because there are things that we're working on now on this very topic that um, will make me make me very proud and I hope will reinforce the points that I'm getting ready to make. You know, um, so I gave you one example uh, of which is kind of the moment of silence at the all hands, but a couple things, you know, backstory on me, and this is, it ties directly to this, backstory on me. When I was at Covington, um, Black Lives Matter had been around for some time. They hadn't really organized from a corporate governance perspective. And so we helped them form Black Lives Matter as an organization and a network and help them with their nonprofit stuff. And so I, I did that work. And what's interesting to me now, honestly, is that at that point in time, the reason they came to us was because no one else would represent them. People saying the phrase Black Lives Matter was so controversial at the time, so toxic, that some of the organizations they worked with wouldn't acknowledge having worked with them. So they were having trouble getting insurance. Law firms wouldn't represent them. Like it was, it, and that wasn't that long ago. I mean, that was literally like four years ago, okay? It wasn't that long ago. And, and so when all of these things have happened recently, I personally have been very moved, frankly, uh, by the way that people have now embraced the phrase Black Lives Matter and that it's no longer as controversial as it was. And I think that that is a quite striking thing. And I, and I think the fact that companies are now willing to say, not all, by the way, but are willing to say it and acknowledge it, I think is a very powerful thing. Uber, in my mind, has gone far beyond what I would have expected with respect to their acknowledgement of these issues. You know, right after the event with George Floyd, we came out and, it, and you can, you know, look at this on our Twitter feed and otherwise, you know, we've talked about Black Lives Matter. We've talked about the need for racial justice. We've made immediate donations supporting causes of racial justice and equity. And, and again, the best part about it is I didn't have to ask. One of our senior, you know, leaders at the organization, Dara and Bo, who was our chief diversity officer, and Nikki Krishnamurthy, who's our chief people officer, they were already on top of it. They already knew that it was important, not just for, um, it was important for employees. You know, we have a large uh, employee resource group, Black at Uber, um, across the organization. It was important to them to be seen and heard and be acknowledged in terms of the pain affiliated with seeing that horrible video and knowing the trail of similar actions that have happened before and will continue to happen. To have our senior leadership come out and say Black Lives Matter to, um, if you go to, the, if you go to Uber Eats right now, you know, Black-owned restaurants have been highlighted. Um, we've num made a number of, you know, outward uh, commitments that are intended to reflect the company's unyielding, I think, commitment to diversity. I think you'll see more. I'm certain you will see more uh, in the coming days to continue to affirm it. And I, I, I hope that in the years to come, people stand back and look at who stepped up first, what they did, how they did it. And I, I hope that people will see what Uber has done, we, you know, not to add to it, but like Juneteenth was a d debate, Dara on his own, like I want to get Juneteenth off this year. And then to, um, to impact more sustaining change, I'm also going to give off election day. 
because people need to go out and go like those are great things and they come from the top care i'm convinced that uber's made a lot of changes in response to the black lives matter movement and i look forward to the announcements that are coming soon i want to ask you though do black lives matter to your investors so that is a totally non-controversial question of course you know the sad truth is um, I would love to say yes unequivocally. I'm not sure I can say that. I think that there are certainly some investors, hopefully the majority, that recognize that racial equality and justice and equity are as critical values for us as people, human beings, setting aside government, setting aside the relationship for us as, a, as Uber as a company, that they do, that they would say yes, they do. And and by the way. Not only would I hope that they say that, I would hope that they would actually do that through actions, which actually matter much more. I am not 100% convinced that that's the case, to be very candid. And, and I say that in part, and frankly, this is more of a societal reflection. The truth is, Juneteenth was recognized as a holiday, and there are lots of very lovely statements that many companies have made about the value of Black lives. But at the end of the day, unless and until organizations that have the influence that investors do hold companies accountable about things that impact black lives every single day, having positions of leadership, the role of diversity and inclusion, making sure that products are made in, in a way um, that are useful for all communities, companies are marketing themselves to, until they use their power that way, it's hard for me to see the action matching that sentiment, honestly. There's certainly some examples. I've gotten loads of very nice sentiment from lots of people about this, but it's really the action that will just buy. And I'll say this, for us, I hope people, A, give us credit for what we do and hold it, but also hold us accountable for what we, what we don't do. And when I see those two things, the credit and the accountability applied to, to everybody, then I'll know that the answer is yes, they do. But until then, I have to give kind of the hedge response of I, I hope so. Kira, thank you so much for sharing that perspective with us. And I look forward to seeing whether the investors indeed hold companies accountable and hold themselves accountable too. We can't ignore that we are recording this during a global pandemic. How has your resourcing of culture and ESG played out in this pandemic? It hasn't changed it at all, to be honest. Um, I think that for things that are important, when we went through the pandemic, we did a layoff. You know, we ha had to go through the process of identifying what roles were essential, what things weren't essential in the context of COVID and, and the like. And you know, I'm very pleased to say, to say that while it is certainly true, all budgets are much tighter than they were before, our budget and, and commitment to reform with respect to culture and ESG has not been impacted literally at all. Like it, ha it hasn't been impacted at all. And so I think that that is a potentially an affirmation of um, what it is that we value as an organization and recognition that these things are important. Um, so let's go to the last question. I always like to give our guests on the ESG beat a magic wand and a crystal ball. Um, so let's start with a magic wand. If you could change anything with respect to how companies are approaching their corporate culture, what would that be? I can change anything. You know, this is going to be a surprise. I don't think you would have predicted this answer. I, I think the thing that I find personally the most troubling when I look at companies, and, it, and it's really a statement about where we are as, as a country, as an economy, is 
it's, it's, it's inequality, honestly. It's both income inequality, particularly in, income inequality, but overall, it's a, one of these deeply ingrained things. It's very difficult to challenge. It's a whole system. But, you know, the place where I see it the most, frankly, having come to work at Uber, a Silicon Valley technology company uh, from a law firm, from the government, is I see the unbelievable difference in income between the most senior people at some of these companies. And look, we do a lot of benchmarking. I look at peer companies in technology and either the, the least paid people at their companies um, and the consumers who use their products. And the fact that there isn't this inherent recognition that something is awry and the fact that the difference is that. When I tell you that a CEO pay ratio of 200 to one is considered low, is a problem. I mean, that's a fundamental problem, but it's not, it's not a Uber problem. It's not a, it, it is a broad societal problem that we need to fix because at the end of the day, and you see it right now, you have all of these essential workers who, thank God for them. Thank God for the grocery clerks. Thank God for the people driving the buses. Thank God for all of the things that, that are the post office workers that are keeping this society functioning right now who, by the way, are literally putting their lives on the line every single day for a mere fraction of what the most senior executives at companies get. And while, yes, I will recognize being the founder, creating something, you should maybe get a little bit more, maybe, it shouldn't be that much. It shouldn't be that much. And, like, I think this is a magic wand kind of thing because it's such a deeply ingrained view that senior executives have it. They deserve every dollar that they've got that it would take something magical to change that mindset. But that's the thing I think ultimately as a, as a country, we, we need to really focus on. So Kier, now I'm gonna hand you a crystal ball. Where do you see us headed? Well, you know, it really depends on what happens in the fall. <laughs> I, think we're gonna, I think we're headed to a place going to the magic wand point where we really are gonna have to make some fundamental change around um, earnings and income and wealth distribution, or else I don't see us surviving as a society. Full stop. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.